is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. And this week is our second dive into Doctor Who this month. Go ahead and take it away. Well, it is an anniversary for Doctor Who. And what is a Doctor Who anniversary without a multi-Doctor special? Uh, especially since it doesn't look like we're getting one on the telly. So this is The Four Doctors by Paul Cornell and Neil Edwards. Uh, it's the first of the Doctor Who comics events that Titan Comics did back when they were publishing more than one Doctor Who comic at a time. The The most recent stuff they've done has just sort of been, here's two Doctors. Just everything's a multi-Doctor story. I've not liked a lot of the more recent things, unfortunately. I, I just wish they would let the writers write a normal Doctor Who story. But this isn't a normal Doctor Who story. This is, it's called The Four Doctors, but I'm only about to tell you mostly about three different ones. Uh, we have Tenth Doctor, who was uh, David Tennant, Eleventh Doctor, who was Matt Smith, and the Twelfth Doctor, who was Peter Capaldi. This is set during Series 8, so it's back when Peter Capaldi was the unlikable, mean, nasty Doctor. Uh, before he, like, got his guitar and grew his hair out and became the uh your granddad from Vegas doctor. And it's very much just the bar humbug old man one contrasted against the younger two, even though the other two are still technically old as shit. Yeah, well it's it's quite funny because so in a way this is a sequel to the Doctor set up from the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor, which had 10 and 11 meeting John Hurt playing the Doctor who's younger than they are. So John Hurt, even though he was by far the oldest actor there, was playing by far the youngest incarnation of the Doctor. Like he's a hundred years younger than even David Tennant, and Matt Smith is like a thousand years older than David Tennant at that point. And in this case, the old man is actually the oldest one for maybe the first time in any multi-doctor story, because normally it's that the old one is the earliest one. But uh, Paul Cornell has a pretty significant history of Doctor Who. He was writing for it uh, as early as the 90s. He did books. He created the spin-off character, well, a companion for a, the books called Bernice Summerfield, who became so popular that she's actually, as of right now, still has an ongoing spin-off just about her and her adventures. Uh, the future of Bernice Summerfield looks a little questionable at best at the moment, but uh, that's just because one of the actors who was heavily involved in the last few 
passed away. So what they want to do with that audio spinoff at this point, sort of unclear. Uh, but Cornell also went on to write for the TV show. Um, he, he wrote Father's Day, which is you have seen. That's as far into Doctor Who as you are. You are a little over halfway through the first series of the revival, which is all you've seen. You're on, um, I think it's episode eight. Something like that. Yeah, just half a season or so. And I want to say the four comics you've made me read prior to this one. So yeah, the Morrison stuff, that little bit of 13 star beast and the Daleks and the Daleks. Very eclectic introduction to Doctor Who. Not one that makes any sense, but we're just covering things for the podcast. Otherwise, I would have you in a much more sensible path. This is late stage Doctor Who, but I needed to pick a multi-Doctor comic because it's the anniversary year. I mean, I've been reading American comic books since I was like five years old, so I have no misgivings about consuming anything out of order. This is if The King in Black is your first Venom comic. See, I don't think this was anywhere nearly that bad, though, is the problem. <laughs> I, I just mean in terms of, like, how much lore is this expecting you to have digested? I honestly really didn't think it was a problem. Like, I could basically understand everything well enough to read the story, you know? Yes, the, the plot is complex, but not complex in a significant way it's it i do think this is expecting you to have watched the whole show but maybe only have watched it once so they feel comfortable being like oh this is when we did this but they feel the need to explain it just enough but um despite the fact that i introduced us to uh 11 10 and 12 earlier uh here we actually open the comic with the war doctor uh hanging out with a bunch of aliens called the vord who we have actually talked about on the podcast before. Um, I think this is one of maybe four appearances the Vord have made outside of their original story back in 1964. I know of two different audio stories featuring the Vord, and then this comic and the Morrison comic. They're big and tall and muscular and shiny. Yeah, this is like... this. The visual here, for me, is like, if the revived show reintroduced the Vord, what would they make the design look like? And that's what they've done. I mean, they do have the benefit of it being a comic, so, like, they don't have the budgetary concern of making it look like a costume, but this is, like, what the concept art would look like before they build, like, a physical suit to put someone in. It looks like hard and metallic but there's also periodic panels in which they sort of do the venom thing where it becomes more of a sort of mercury looking substance yeah yeah you you specifically sent me some of these panels with the venom <laughs> but yeah so uh in the context of this comic the vord were allies of the time lords during the time war uh, which is the big time and space war that the Daleks and the Time Lords fought in that ended with at least the seeming destruction of both races, although um, a little bit like comic book characters, 
You can't keep these fuckers down. Uh, but the Time War does continue to have repercussions, even in, like, the current show. And in this case, basically, it's established that the Vord have been actually improved by the changes to their timeline made as a result of the Time War, because at the Time War was a war between two alien species with incredibly advanced time travel technology. So both species were able to shield their own timelines from being changed so that like if you're a time lord you can't go back in time and kick davros over like and shoot him in the head before he makes the daleks and now there's no daleks or if you're a dalek you can't go back in time and you know kill rassilon back when he's like a baby and there's no time lords but uh that can happen to everyone else and it did the time war is why anything that doesn't match up with the old series, like if New Who has a celebrity, like historical character who the Doctor met in Old Who, like if they ever do a uh, Leonardo da Vinci episode, they don't have to acknowledge the fact that the Doctor's already met Leonardo da Vinci back is the fourth Doctor, because Leonardo da Vinci's timeline probably got reset in the Time War. It's sort of a convenient way to excuse those sorts of things. It's a written-in way of hand-waving continuity when they don't feel like acknowledging it. Yeah. Yeah, the only continuity you have to acknowledge is uh, that Daleks and Time Lords were in the war and everything got fucked up. And the rest of it is a shrug, it's time travel. But the Vord, due to these changes, so they used to just be like, a bunch of assholes in wetsuits. That's pretty much the easiest way to explain what they, they are. They, they were just guys in wetsuits. The Vord now have these, like, high-tech, you know, liquid metal, like, T-1000-style suits that form over their bodies and connect them to a hive mind. And they're worried that the Time Lords, at the end of the war, are going to reverse the changes from the Time War and they're trying to sort of negotiate with the War Doctor, who's the he's actually really relevant to this story because there's a lot of things. He's the Doctor during the Time War, but he wasn't calling himself the Doctor. Inconsistent as to whether he had a different name or whether everyone just still called him the Doctor and he just said, Don't call me that. He's easiest to refer to as the War Doctor. But he's basically just like, uh, yeah, when the war's over, I'll I'll negotiate on your behalf. But, like, the Time Lords are the Time Lords. They fucking suck. So, yeah. We cut to the present. So, it is important. I said earlier, this is set during Series 8. This is before the Series 8 finale, um, which was, like, a big sort of character moment for the Twelfth Doctor that results in the more fun personality we get later. So, right now, we have Deeply Unpleasant Twelfth Doctor traveling with... Clara Oswald, who's a school teacher at this point. Clara is an interesting companion in that she is the most divisive Doctor Who companion of all time because she is intentionally written to be kind of the worst. So just like not bad character writing, but intentionally unlikable. I think sometimes it's hard to tell. It When it's done well, I'm like, oh, yes, okay, I see you're doing this bit on purpose. I get it. And then sometimes you're just like, okay, but 
you can't expect me to care about her if she's going to be this terrible. But essentially, her whole thing is that she is... Moffat's conception for the character is, what if the Doctor was an ordinary woman from Earth? But other than that, the Doctor. And the whole point of her and the Doctor's whole friendship and relationship over the course of her time on the show, which lasts two and a half seasons, which was a mistake, in my opinion, goes on too long. But the whole point is that their friendship becomes toxic and exacerbates both of their worst traits. So basically, they become so attached to each other, they continuously do increasingly like bad things in order to maintain their relationship. They'll lie, they'll deceive. The doctor eventually winds up like shooting someone as part of an attempt to bring Clara back to life after she dies. I'm massively spoiling huge plot points here for you, but it's fine. I'm sure you don't mind. And so she has taken it upon herself to try and prevent a horrible future that she's seen in a space museum that results from specifically the 10th, 11th, and 12th Doctors meeting at a specific point in time on the planet Marinus. Marinus is where the Vorda from, which only matters in this so far as nobody can remember Marinus. And because this is a Titan Comics comic, the 10th and 11th Doctors at this point are traveling with Gabby Gonzalez with the 10th Doctor and Alice Obifun? I actually don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, With the 11th Doctor. They're characters who were made up for the comics. They're both fine. There's a bit of a joke about them in this that uh, I'll, I'll mention when we get there. Uh, but so far as I can tell, based on the context clues of what I remember from those series and also in this, the 11th Doctor is just sort of traveling with Alice while Amy and Rory are on their honeymoon in between series five and six, I think. And the 10th Doctor is like right at the end of his life. Like he's like 10 minutes away from going and regenerating, which we will get to the 10th Doctor's regeneration. But yes, Clara's great idea is to try and talk to these two companions and convince them to get their doctors to leave the cafe that they're all sort of going to randomly wind up meeting up at in order to prevent them from being in a situation where they're going to go and get this picture taken. Which does immediately cause all three doctors, well, first the 11th and 10th doctors rush in and they have a back and forth about, like, are you the doctor? Because, you know, the Doctor doesn't recognize their future selves. And just as they, like, figure out what's going on between the two of them, the Twelfth Doctor comes in and is... He's just mean. I, I really like the Twelfth Doctor during his mean period. Uh, Like, the whole idea of the Doctor's mean period in Series 8, uh, it's... they. I mean, they literally say it on the show at one point. He's not trying to be nice anymore. He feels comfortable enough in who he is with and like his friendship with Clara to not feel the need to pretend to be like a fresh faced young person who's just running around excitedly wearing something stupid. As someone who's being introduced to them all essentially with this, 
Uh, I sent you some clips to watch, but that's it, really, of the original actors' performances. What did you think of the three here? Yeah, it's like I only had a sort of vague awareness of them that mostly came down to just knowing what the actors look like going in. And I think artistically, it mostly does a pretty good job in terms of rendering them, you know, like this specific art style that's used. And then I suppose just the nature of the plot leans heavily on trying to make the characters look reasonably like the real life actors and I think it mostly does a pretty good job. They're usually pretty recognizable as those characters, even to the degree that someone who's only passingly familiar with them, like I am, can recognize and be like, oh yeah, that's that guy that I vaguely know, like David Tennant. There will be like some exceptions throughout, you know, like some specific panels where a face will seem off. Every now and then there will specifically be like a rendering of lips that is a bit uncomfortable to look at. But for the most part, it's quite good in terms of the art doing at least what it seems to me like it's what it's trying to do in terms of just rendering real life people without being terrifying about it. You know, I think we've seen much worse examples of this sort of thing before yeah i think out of the artists with the sort of more realistic trying to do something that looks pretty close to the real person style neil edwards is certainly i think the most consistent that titan comics ever put on one of these books like i'm glad that they have one artist doing this event because all the other events they did are a fucking mishmash of just 18 different people and it's really difficult to read because of that. And this is very nice in that it's just, here's one artist. You're only ever going to be looking at this artist's versions of these characters. And yeah, he does he does a good job. Like, it's it, this is very difficult to do. There's no one who's going to be more particular about these characters, their mannerisms, and their appearance than Doctor Who fans. You know, Shooty Gut was not even aired in a single episode of Doctor Who yet, but I I have a shirt that I bought from the exact same store that is the exact same brand as one of the shirts that he's been seen wearing on set. And it's not even the one from the official pictures. And I just know that because knew to get that because I just looked online and you can find this is what he's wearing. Because some maniac you know, looks at the set photos that some other maniac has taken by, like, just going to the set and, you know, reaching up above the fence or whatever with the camera. And we've all figured it out. And then I've gone and I've I spent money to have a shirt from the same company that it's just a different color. But other than that, it's the exact same shirt because they were sold out, oddly enough, of the one that was the right color. Yeah, I do kind of think that it's sort of a double-edged sword in terms of what the art sort of has to do here as an adaptation where 
while it does do a largely good job of rendering people that look like well-known people, you know, and if it's going to be using these characters, it does kind of have to do that. But I kind of wonder if it might not be more interesting to see a Doctor Who comic that was not so constrained style-wise, I suppose. You know, because even though this is a transfer to a different medium, and we've sort of talked about the idea of comics not having the budgetary limits in the same way that a live-action production does, there's still sort of that limit of adhering to a semi-realistic aesthetic, you know, and like the idea or preconceived notion of what these characters look like. I think it is kind of visually limiting in its own way. And like, while the art never is terrible at all here, you know, I think it's mostly good, or at least like a good for what it's doing, you know, and my cons are relative. It does still feel like a bit stiff in some places. I don't know if you agree or not, like certain points... I would agree. Yeah, like, I think especially in terms of just, like, characters within the environments and just sort of, like, a sense of the world around them, it doesn't feel especially grounded. Like, it really feels especially like the artist just had to spend so much time on the character rendering that while like the background and other aspects are functional it's not like top tier immersive work to me does that make any sense oh no that does i i will say as much as i said that edwards is the best that they ever had who does this style i typically prefer licensed comics to have a style that is less realistic because then it frees you up a lot you know you just have to capture like What's the chief feature? You can exaggerate it a little, and then you've got that character. And then you can worry about everything else and spend a lot more time on it. Whereas this is like, well, David Tennant kind of has to look like David Tennant in every panel of David Tennant in a way that is limiting. I I would wholeheartedly agree. Like, if you look at the... So they've got these backup comics. Is that on the version that you have on um, Hoopla? They're present in the Hoopla version, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's different backup comics that they've had done by um, different artists, all of whom have a uh, much less detailed, far more cartoony style than Edward's. Or uh, the opening of issue two, we see what I think might actually be Edward's drawing. Um, we see what might actually be Edward's drawing Gabby's uh, like visualization of meeting other doctors where it's much more I'm gonna say Disney is sort of the 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 style and there's a bunch of different like Disney style drawings of David Tennant like it's got like kind of that quality to it and I don't think that the the more cartoony things from the backups would fit this story but I could almost see this story in something closer to the style that we have for this one page that's from Gabby's point of view where 
we push the visuals a little less realistically so that you can just sort of go further with some of the other aspects of it. But yeah, that's just my general preference with licensed comics. I do think this is fine. I mean, this is still a monthly book and I have no idea what kind of lead time they had in this. As I said, every other time they have done one, they did one of these events. The other two were, I mean, A, they were much longer and in my opinion, dragged out. And B, they had like three to four different artists minimum, just thinking back on them. Uh, so frankly, out of all of them, I still vastly prefer this. I can imagine. Yeah, like I've certainly flipped through and seen some like IDW and Titan modern who comics that look a lot worse than this. Oh, I I have not enjoyed a single IDW Doctor Who comic that I've ever read. The coloration alone is so muddy. Yeah, I, I'm putting that down to mismanagement. I don't want to blame any specific creators. I I like I I just think that IDW just were not doing a good job with it. I will say I do wish the coloration in this was more vibrant. Like one thing about the Twelfth Doctor's outfit in this is you would have no idea that the lining of his coat is red, even though that is such a like big visual signifier for the character on the show. And when you see it in this, it's a reddish brown. But like the point is that every time the character is in motion in the show, you see like the flashes of red and the bright color. It's part of the like quirkiness of the outfit that he otherwise doesn't visually have compared to someone like the Eleventh Doctor with his dumb bow tie. I do think the colors generally need to be a bit more vibrant, except for like when they are. Like sometimes it does look good. Like when we see the Twelfth Doctor's TARDIS, the the orange glow throughout that sequence. I'm like, yeah, that is what that looks like. And then sometimes I'm just like, why the show is more colorful than this? And this is the comic. And generally, I expect comics to be much more colorful than real life. I never at all picked up on the lining of the coat. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a bright red. At one point in the show, he says, oh, I was aiming for minimalism, but I think I just wound up with Magician when explaining his outfit. Here, it's just a suit. Yeah, yeah, it makes him look a lot more bland visually. And then Eleven's bow tie is normally a bit of a brighter color. It's it's just, I think the coloring's fine in terms of the rendering over the art, stuff like that. I just think that some of the colors need to pop a lot more than they are. Not even all of them, just some of them. Yeah. But um, speaking of uh, Father's Day and Paul Cornell's previous work, going back to that, we do have a cameo by the Reapers because the three Doctors meeting at what they've described as a fixed point in time is the exact same paradox that created the situation in Father's Day that brought the Reapers, which are um, the kind of flying dragonflies with sides on the end of their tail that... Um, Whenever there's a paradox, they break through reality and will, like, kill everything in sight in order to cleanse the timeline, and that's how they feed. This is very funny because this is literally the only other time I can think of that Reapers have appeared in anything at all. I guess I could Google this, but I'm sure if there is a third thing, it's another Paul Cornell script. No one else ever worries about the Reapers. Whenever there is a paradox exactly like this in Doctor Who again, the Reapers do not show up. But here we get them. 
mostly for a fun runaround, and then also so that the other Doctors can be critical of the Twelfth Doctor, because he risks their lives in order to make sure that they've like captured all the Reapers in the situation. It's Again, this is a conflict that's happening with the Twelfth Doctor at the time. He was in the show questioning his own morality, and there's my favorite of that season, my favorite episode is called uh, The Mummy on the Orient Express, which basically the Doctor's put in a situation where people are dying one by one, and when someone is going to die, they find out about a minute before they're going to die. And the Doctor needs to get as much information from them about what they're experiencing as they die, so that he could maybe save the next person by stopping it from happening anymore. And so every time someone's going to die, they're having this whole like extended minute-long realization of their incoming mortality, going, oh god, oh god, what am I going to do? Trying to find ways of getting out of it, stuff like that, in this sort of panic mode. And the Twelfth Doctor's having to be like, to give, you know, relay anything, answer my questions, relay information back to me, so I can save the next person, because there's no chance of me doing anything for you. I don't have enough time. And, like, the, the question of how he handles that, and the, like, abrasive way he handles these people sometimes, and the fact that after someone has died, he doesn't stop and mourn, he just starts trying to apply the information he's got, and the, like, inhumanity of the way he's processing these these events becomes a big, like, a division point between him and Clara, and so he sits down and he explains that he's wants to mourn people, he wants to stop, but he knows that if he does, he's risking more people so he can't, and that how is how his whole life always feels, always being the Doctor, where every single time he turns up somewhere, it turns into some, some sort of world-ending crisis. Like, every fucking time. And so this is just the way he is now after so much time. And here we even see other doctors being like upset that he's, you know, because he's just taking this immediate stance of saving the most possible people at the risk of dying themselves because they're like trapping the Reapers. It doesn't matter how they're solving the Reaper problem, really. But a big part of this comic is the conflict between the different doctors and the fact that the doctor never gets along with himself whenever they meet up. This is, I think, actually maybe an extreme version of it because. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. But 10 and 11, as they do in the day of a doctor, like nearly get on. But 12 and them really don't. Just because essentially they're different attitudes and they're different approaches. One of the recurring beats in this that I really like is every time there's something happening suddenly, all three doctors immediately yell out a different possible solution and then start arguing about that solution, which means that they don't actually solve the problem. And everyone else is standing around going, oh, for God's sake, just pick something to do. Anyway, they um, they all solve the problem of the Reapers and, like, the paradox that they caused. So they all decide to go to Marinus in order to try and figure out what's up with this picture that if it gets taken somehow results in a timeline that's going to end all of reality. And all the Doctors are like, well, we just don't have to get into this pose we're in in the picture. No one will be able to get the picture if we're not in the pose. And then all it takes is one argument and they all immediately wind up fighting and in that pose. There's mysterious explosions coming from nowhere, which leads them all into this maze 
which when they get to the center of it, there is it's a Dalek weapon from the Time War called a Continuity Bomb. Uh, oh, fun fact about the Titan comics, for the longest time, they didn't have the rights to the Daleks, so they couldn't have Daleks appear in these. They could reference the Daleks, and they could have things that Daleks have made show up, so long as those things didn't look exactly like Daleks. And it is extremely funny, every now and then they do a comic like this, where they clearly wanted to have a Dalek in it, but someone's gone, oh, well, we can't, so they've written... Like, oh, we only see the outside of the Dalek ship, and we establish that there's no Daleks in it anymore. Or in this case, here's the, um, here's the, like, old Dalek weapon. It's got, like, a top that looks kind of like a Dalek, but it isn't one. That's so weird. I, I, I'm a little like, wow, the right situation here. So Al Ewing wrote a 11th Doctor comic where he fights a bunch of Daleks. But it was still when they didn't have the rights to Daleks. So these creatures are technically not Daleks and only kind of look like Daleks, except for the fact that they're Daleks who have been genetically modified. Like, it is amazing the degree to which, like, uh, I'm just sort of like, okay, but this is about Daleks. How are you getting away with this? They don't look like Daleks and they're not genetically Daleks. They were just made by the Daleks using Dalek stuff. <laughs> the lines to which one can sometimes push things without actually crossing them seeming so ridiculously close that it's like what was gained by not just letting Daleks be here I I think that the Terry Nation estate frankly probably would have been able to sue the Al Ewing comic at the very least like no way <laughs> But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they weren't able to get the uh, Doctor Who right situation is complicated. Did I mention the um fact that the BBC don't have the rights to the show the very first episode of Doctor Who anymore? Last yeah. episode, I might have done. I believe so. I know I've talked to you about it. I just couldn't remember whether I brought it up on the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes Doctor Who and rights is super strange. Disney Plus is going to be airing New Doctor Who starting on the 25th of November, but they don't have the right to stream any of the previous seasons, and so only the new stuff is going to be on Disney Plus until at least 2025. Welp. Just due to, like, pre-existing contracts, and I'm just sort of like, how on earth did they... Okay. <laughs> I, I I'm like doing the 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 in my head i'm just sort of like right but how 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 is the contract not just for doctor who what do you mean you've nailed it down to different seasons in your contract with with uh i guess it's max now which is where the previous 13 series of doctor who before this upcoming specials and the upcoming series 14 are from it's a mess it's so complicated it's not as bad as the classic Doctor Who rights situation where you literally sometimes have to call up the like racist bigot sons of the guy who co-wrote an episode in order to get permission to have it. But anyway, while all the Doctors are arguing about what to do with the continuity bomb, it goes off, and as they're flying into... Uh, oh, what did you think of this time vortex? Because it's made of clockwork. 
I um I sent you the series eight title sequence to explain why this looks like this. Because the time vortex normally looks like space stuff, but for the twelfth doctor, I there's actually a pretty great story behind it. The um the showrunner at the time, Stephen Moffat, had seen a YouTube video by a graphic designer who was a fan of the show who'd come up with his own sequence title sequence for the show that was emphasizing the idea of time. And so the title sequence was like flying through clockwork and then um, spinning between two different sort of clock phases that were in a spiral going into infinity, representing the concept of time rather than the in-show, like, literal time vortex that's like a thing that the TARDIS goes into when it flies around that typically just sort of looks like space stuff in weird lines and is very 2001 A Space Odyssey in, in appearance. They literally use the same effect that was used in 2001 A Space Odyssey for the third and fourth Doctor title sequence. And sometimes that filtered into other media because the the time vortex in the show usually looks like the title sequence. With the twelfth Doctor, the couple times we see the type the time vortex in the show, every single time it just looks different because no one's actually gonna show the TARDIS flying through clockwork as like part of the in-universe narrative. But at this point in time, some of the expanded media did use the clockwork stuff literally, including here, which I think it looks cool. I love the clock spiral face. That was such a great visual that um, Bill Henshaw, I want to say, came up with. As someone from the outside, I honestly just didn't even bat an eye at it. You know, it just seemed like a perfectly natural visual metaphor for time travel. So not knowing how common or not common it was used it didn't really even strike me as unusual it was just like that makes sense that's how you would draw that uh yeah no this is very specific because this is a fan who got to then like design the basis of the titles for the show and then the bbc graphics department made like the final version that is the one I sent you. I will find the earlier versions to send to you. There was the original YouTube video, and then he made another one that was the basis that they then used more directly for making the actual official title sequence. So there's three versions of it out there. But yeah, I I've always really loved this idea visually. Um, the 13th Doctor has a great title sequence. It's one of the better things in her era is actually just how cool her title sequence and theme tune is but i did kind of miss the clockwork uh i do think it's a shame that the 12th doctor's tardis didn't get a bunch of clockwork in it i think they should have gone steampunk with it but they didn't unfortunately but yeah more importantly to the story basically the continuity bomb means when you get hit by it it picks the worst outcome from like any possible choice you could have made in the past and then makes it happen. But because it's three different Doctors, we get to see the worst possible outcome of their like choices that they are going to make in the future. And so we get the 10th Doctor where at the end of his last story, because you haven't seen End of Time, you don't even know who Wilfred Mott is. 
this is why this comic was insane to give you because they're just like, oh yeah, he, here is the um tenth doctor deciding he's going to just let Wilfred Mott die instead of saving him, which is oh that's rough after Bernard Cribbins has passed away, and so he goes on to become an insane tyrant is not a thing I imagine you wouldn't have had any awareness of any of this, but this this was a scene that happened in the show. And in the show, the Tenth Doctor has a brief rant when he realizes that he's going to have to die in order to save Wilf about how he could have done more and how he wants more time to like live as this version of the Doctor. But then he's like, okay, no, I do actually just need to save your life, don't I? And so he does it and saves him. This one says, oh, I don't want to go, so I'm not going. And then you turn the page and he's ruling the universe and then gets assassinated. The thing is, this is wholly believable for the Tenth Doctor. The thing about the Tenth Doctor is he's secretly one of the most, like, awful and nasty incarnations of the Doctor. It's just that all of his companions are in love with him and won't tell him to stop when he's doing something horrible. But he is the Doctor who is most likely to commit a genocide. We're still talking about David Tennant, right? Yeah, yeah, David Tennant is the most likely to commit a genocide out of all the doctors. Not what I would have guessed, given him being him, but okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, especially given more context later, where you find out that, like, the, the Time Lords aren't dead, so the War Doctor didn't do a genocide. The Tenth Doctor reinforces that decision though to kill all the time lords so he kind of tried to he's yeah and he's got a temper he's he's the doctor who is most likely when you fuck with him he will fuck back uh he goes way off the rails towards the end of his life this is like stuff that's literally about to happen to this version of the doctor because he references at one point having met another fake like another possible future doctor uh, at Christmas, which is referencing um, his third to last episode, or fourth to last? Third to last story. So literally the Doctor in the comic is about to go through the events that apparently he could wind up going down this timeline instead. The Eleventh Doctor's awful fate is not one that makes sense to me, to be honest. I understand why they picked this, but it's there is a story where uh, these, this is another series finale, but it's not like one where the Doctor regenerates or anything. But there is a story where basically because the Doctor's wife, River Song, spoilers, is supposed to kill him. It's like a fixed point in time she's supposed to murder him because reasons. And she doesn't. And so all of time breaks and is happening all at the same time, which basically just sort of results in like Winston Churchill being the leader of the Roman Empire. Like the world becomes like a funny mashup world. Like Area 51 and the Egyptian pyramids are the same place now. There's like don't feed the pterodactyl signs in like the park instead of don't feed the pigeon signs. Charles Dickens has written the Christmas Carol as like a Christmas special on BBC Two. Shit like that. Okay. Yeah, and apparently this alternate 11th Doctor has decided, rather than executing his already 
come up with and successful, like, going to be successful plan to find a way of not dying while still fulfilling the fixed point, which he had already done at the point that this is happening. But the trick is he's just put himself in a robot body. Like, there was a robot that you could shrink into and pilot. Like, it's a, a... Like, so you walk around in this robot duplicate of yourself, and you're just, like, really small and in its head. And so that way, he's there, and she shoots him. But he's only tiny in the robot, and so the robot is the thing that died. Is what actually winds up happening. And he's already in the robot at this point. So why this version of Eleven has decided to hang out in the robot in a house with River Song, even though this is a thing he could have done after being like, hey, we've we've solved the problem. I, I don't know. I, I don't like as somebody's watched the episode, I don't get this. Yes, that is that is I think weirdly my biggest narrative critique of this is I'm just like, wow, I would have picked like a different story for him to make a horrible decision. Because what the fuck? <laughs> but then we get the Twelfth Doctor's timeline where he is alone, disheveled, he's got much longer hair and a beard, hanging out in the TARDIS, just sort of randomly yelling about being upset with Clara. Uh, This is all referencing the Series 8 finale, where Clara does betray the Doctor, kind of. Essentially, her boyfriend gets run over, and she wants to force the Doctor to either help her undo it from happening or help her like travel to the afterlife in order to get him question mark uh so she steals all the tardis keys and like sets up this whole situation where basically if he doesn't help her she'll throw all the keys into a volcano and he'll never be able to unlock the tardis in order to get back into it ever again and in the episode, the doctor's just sort of like, yeah, of course I'll, I'll I'll help you, you know, with the whole boyfriend situation. Let's go and figure out about the afterlife now. It turns into a whole thing with Cybermen. Doesn't matter. Point is, this doctor a version of him apparently just said, uh, no, fuck off, leave me alone, and then became a mopey git hanging out inside the TARDIS. And so they're able to, like, essentially make it so that this is the timeline that's going to happen, because it is, out of all of these objectively, by far the least awful one. Like, the other two timelines are, like, universe-spanning levels of destruction, and this one is Sad Doctor with Beard. And if you were wondering about the title and why this story seems to be about three Doctors when it's called the Four Doctors, that's because the Fourth Doctor is another Twelve. Because now that they've made this timeline real, it's all of them, all of the characters of the story are now hanging out in the TARDIS with the older bearded 12. Effectively, I was really sad, so I became evil 12. Yes, as we're about to see. So basically, we find out very, very quickly that actually he's secretly the leader of the Vord now. Because the Vord have like placed themselves outside the universe or whatever. He's joined their hive mind. So the last time we read a comic about the Vord, the Vord used time technology to artificially advance themselves into becoming the Cybermen, who are, you know, a race of cybernetic beings who are technologically enhanced um, and are all connected to a single mainframe that dictates their programming, you know, a hive mind. 
And this comic is about the Vord, who thanks to the Time War and all the time technology used in it, have been technologically advanced to the point where they have a hive mind. <laughs> I, I do wonder whether Paul Cornell has read those Morrison comics, where it was just like, okay, I'll do a riff on that for the Vord. It is just weird to be like, oh, I'll bring the Vord back, of all the things. I mean, if it's something relatively minor, then I imagine it is probably a bit less of a pain in the ass to use in terms of the wealth of prior stories to kind of have to worry about, you know? Yes. Well, and the Vord are kind of fun I on that level, I guess, in that a nerd like me, when you say the Vord, I instantly know what you're talking about. But also, I don't give a shit about them. So, like, you're going to get the pop of me going, Oh, it's the Vord! You're doing the Vord? But also not going to get me going, I don't like how you've handled the Vord in this. Sort of the benefit of using something that no one really cares about. But they know, because it's been around. The thing about the Vord is they were created by the same guy who created the Daleks. He, when he did the Vord, he was just trying to get, like, He's like, well, the last time I did a silly monster on Doctor Who, it became the biggest thing ever. You know, it literally, the Dalek Mania of the 60s is called Dalek Mania, named after Beetle Mania. There was a couple of years where Daleks were, like, that big, that it was directly comparable to the Beatles in the UK. He went on and he did the Vord, like, the next year, and no one gave a shit. <laughs> But all the Doctor Who fans know about the Vord because they're the other thing made by Terry Nation, who made the Daleks. Which does lead me to more Terry Nation estate questions when it comes to Titan comics. I'm like, so the Terry Nation estate, you clearly were able to talk to them because they let you use the Vord, right? Like, they must have the Vord rights too. They said, yes, Vord, no Daleks. Okay. Well, I have to also immediately wonder if it's a licensing cost issue too because god oh, knows yeah yeah I, they did eventually do some dalek stuff in titan and um god we might cover that someday just so i can like complain about the way the daleks were drawn in that comic because it's awful the vord i think looked very nice we've not we talked about them a bit earlier um i really like the designs for the heads Basically, all of them have a slightly different head shape. It's all this, like, smooth, sort of angular faceplate that's got no face on it. And then they all curve outwards at the top, creating, like, um, it's almost a horn silhouette, but not really. The point shape is also kind of reminiscent of just, like, an upside-down Batman logo. Yeah, yeah, especially on the, uh, on the 12th Doctor Vord, like the Vord leader. But um, certainly as a reimagining of the original Vord design, I think this is, like, this makes sense. It's kind of going in the opposite direction, actually, that we saw the Vord design evolve when we saw them in the Morrison comics we covered, where they turn into Cybermen and the fins on the side of the Vord head get smaller and the holes in them get bigger, so they turn into the handlebars for Cybermen. Whereas in this, the holes are filled in and the fins have gotten bigger and more pronounced. But as I said earlier, the um, the sort of like plot in terms of what's happened to the Vord is surprisingly similar. Yeah. 
looking through just a quick Google image search. I like these, what I take to be the old-timey original live-action photos of them in terms of just, like, there's a certain sleekness to the all-black that I like, but in terms of, I guess, a modern thing that's not limited by a super cheap costume budget, this looks more polished comparatively design-wise, I suppose. Well, and they aren't wearing just, like, flippers that you've bought from a store. From a dollar store, no less. Yeah, the, um, the, the Vord's planet originally was, like, there was a lot of water on it, and so the design basically started at, let's take a guy in a wetsuit and put a thing on his head. There's, there's your monster. See, that's um, so simple that it's cute, though. I kind of like that. Yeah, I, I've always had, like, an affection for the Vord. You know, I mean, I actually first encountered them in the Morrison story where they turn into Cybermen. And, uh, like, one of the audios that features them I think is pretty good. Then there's this. If I was running the show, I'd bring the Vord back. I'd, I'd come up with a Vord story to do. That would be on my to-do list. There's just something often intrinsically pleasing about bringing back something that is obscure but also really old so it feels like it has a relevance by nature of just being old as shit even if it's not actually popular uh case in point neil patrick harris is playing the celestial toy maker another 1960s one-off villain in the new upcoming 60th anniversary specials from another story that wasn't especially good. Actually, it was pretty bad. To be honest, I think the Marinus story where the board come from is better than the Celestial Toymaker. But uh, yeah, you bring back something that all people are immediately going to be interested. Admittedly, the Celestial Toymaker makes a lot more sense now that the show has like a budget because he's a like extra dimensional. He's basically Mr. Mixel Split Stick. Yeah, like a just just mean Mixel Split Stick. Why the show in the 60s, when they had like $5, decided to do Mr. Mixel's split stick, I don't know. Uh, but I'm excited to see what they do with him now. All right, back to the, the, the comic. So, the Vord, basically, after they... God, okay, actually. Um, so, where you are in the show right now, you know that the Time Lords were in the Time War, and that the Doctor, in order to end the time war because it was literally going to destroy all of reality destroyed all the Daleks and time lords at the same time and killed both races off which was the end of the time war that's where you are um at this point in the show with the 12th doctor uh we found out that well the, the time lords aren't dead so in the 50th anniversary special uh, they actually go and meet up with the War Doctor on the day that he's going to, like, blow up the Time Lords. And they figure out another way of ending the war, uh, which basically involved locking Gallifrey in a pocket dimension. And then using the fact that there were Daleks on every side of the planet against them because, like, Gallifrey disappears and all the Daleks are now just shooting at all the other Daleks on the other side of the planet. And so they all get caught in each other's crossfire and blow up. 
so it looks to the rest of the universe like everyone's been eliminated, but actually the Time Lords are just locked away safely, but the Doctor can't reach them. And so what the eighth, 12th Doctor has supposedly been doing, and this only ever comes up in series finales, and the rest of the time he's just doing normal Doctor Who shit, but he is supposedly actively trying to find the bubble dimension that the Time Lords got shunted into. And so the Vord, upon realizing that there was a chance the Time Lords could come back, have like locked themselves in their own bubble dimension and then wiped everyone in the universe his minds of like the Vord or like remove themselves from time or whatever because they've got like that level of time technology I guess which is why no one has been able to remember what the fuck a Vord or like Marinus is up until now in the story it must have been fun for Paul Cornell to like watch through all of New Who again and be like what's the one thing from Classic Who that's not referenced oh they never referenced the Vord I'll make a comic about the Vord. I'm wondering if that's how he came up with the Vord as the uh like the villains for this story. But um it's also so sad Twelfth Doctor is now the evil leader of the Vord because he was so sad he tried to leave the universe, wound up in the Vord's bubble dimension, and like their hive mind has made them happy. And so now this is like evil worst timeline twelfth doctor who is high on Vord shit and wants to put Vord shit in everyone. Honestly, it does make the, like, Venom-like visuals that we start getting, especially, like, he's spiky when he's in his Vord. Like, he's the spikiest of the Vord. This is kind of the, uh, the, the 12th Doctor on Symbiote. Not as sexy, though. Fair. Fair. He, he is wearing clothes underneath it. Uh, the guy earlier in the comic was not. But the Twelfth Doctor is. Or um, I guess I should call him the Vord leader just to differentiate him from like the actual Twelfth Doctor. But he figured out... This is... I love Doctor Who. The evil Vord leader Doctor figured out that he was actually an alternate timeline version who wasn't going to happen. And so he has engineered all of these events to ensure that he winds up existing. Yeah. Like his evil plan is literally just... I need to make my old self miserable enough that I wind up with the Vord. And then the Vord can conquer the universe. But first, I need to, like, exist in the first place. Self-preservation, yeah. Yeah, I I, I really like this evil plan. Because all he wants to do, the, the one thing that he's planning on doing is just mind-wipe everyone, send them back where they were, because we've already achieved the important thing of, like setting this timeline in place via the photograph and the nonsense. And Alice and Gabby, the two Titan original characters, managed to escape uh, while they're just mind-wiping everyone and sending them back. And this is a funny bit, because this is very true. The Vord leader isn't going to bother mind-wiping Alice and Gabby and sending them back in time. He's just going to kill them. Because it doesn't matter to the timeline of the Doctor whether or not he's met them. Which is a very funny way of referencing the fact that these characters are just going to be in these comics and never in anything else again. And like, you know, they're never going to come up in the show. They're never going to come up in the audio stories. You know, it's just going to be these comics are the only thing where these characters appear. 
so it's kind of lamp shading that like these are tie-in media exclusives and they don't actually matter in the main media that people care about yeah or like it's it's the difficult thing with doc to expanded media is do you, you know, you've got the doctor and the doctor you kind of can't do too much with with some exceptions because typically a doctor has been under the show for three years and we kind of see their general arc right and so you, when you're doing expanded media like this you're slotting back just into that so you're like all right pick two episodes that all of this stuff i'm doing is going to be set in between and then your other question is if the companion is also in that situation like if you're doing a comic where it's the 10th Doctor and Rose. Well, you know exactly what's going to happen to Rose, and you know exactly what's going to happen to the 10th Doctor. Can you make your story something where you're, like, worried about these characters? Or do you make up an original companion who then can have the different effect of, well, now what happens to this companion might matter, because you could kill this companion off, you know? But then you have the other effect of, right, but this is a character who we've already seen, doesn't have an effect on the Doctor. Uh, so I, I do quite like that this is sort of making a bit of a joke, or like pointing out that like, whenever you're doing time media like this, uh, like especially now that Doctor is so much more narratively driven than it was back in the old version of the show, it's really tricky to find the right balance and the right way to do stories that could still have some tension while, you know, using new characters that you're trying to make people care about being the only way, but then being like, yeah, but does does the central relationship, the Doctor-Companion relationship matter? Because this isn't someone he's ever going to mention in the show, in everything else we see. It's a hellishly difficult situation that's kind of the base conceit of the whole project. I do not envy yeah. anyone having to deal with it. I'm always very generous, to, especially the comics and the, the books. The audios frequently will just introduce new companions and they really get away with it because they have actors performing. And I always think the actors performing automatically just feels more real than, say, writing a new companion or even doing it in a comic where you have the visual. My noted exception to not being able to do much with the Doctor is the Eighth Doctor because the Eighth Doctor literally appeared in a single TV movie and then a single five-minute uh, special more than 20 years later. No, sorry, uh, not more than 20 years. Um, TV movies, 96. This five-minute YouTube video is 2013. So uh, I guess 17 years. And a lot of change for him. So the audios with the Eighth Doctor that have been running since uh, 2000 have done a lot with that character. And he's had like a bunch of different arcs where like he's gone through some shit and it matters and it's affected him. And like classic who it's also a little easier because in the show, no one ever talks about their emotions. But in New Who, they're always talking about it. So it's really difficult. I don't envy anyone trying to figure out, well, how do I retroactively do something with the 10th Doctor? A Doctor who's established to have lived for exactly four years, the four years that we saw on television, and 
you know, has a significant emotional relationship with all three of the companions he's seen traveling with on screen. And we see everything that leads to his evolution as like a person over the course of those four years. It's tricky shit. Yeah. But um, after lampshading the particular difficulties of doing time media, the Vord leader does actually succeed in mind wiping everyone and sending them back in time. The only loose end is that Alice and Gabby are still out and about in the Vord city, but Alice gets shot and like just immediately shot and killed by one of the Vord and all Gabby has left. The only thing left that she's got that she could possibly help her out is her doctor was the 11th doctor and it was established earlier on that while they were in France, because the cafe they met up in was in France, he picked up a like order of French comics from a store. And this is, she has somehow wound up holding onto this fucking package of French comics. And out of ideas, she opens it, hoping to find something that might help her out inside. Screams, oh no, at what she sees. The Vord shuts her up and like, oh, we don't need to bother killing her because we're looking at her gravestone now. You haven't seen Blink. But the thing that was in the box of comics was a weeping angel. Which is uh, basically they're stone statues, but only when you look at them. And when they touch you, you go back in time and they like feed off of the like time you would have lived further on in the present. If that makes sense. Is that Yeah, that makes sense, I think. Yeah, I recognized it from there is a little bit on them in one of the clips you sent me. Yes, yeah, I sent you the uh, the the don't blink, the explanation scene. I figured you needed at least some idea because, um, it's it's frankly weird that I have been showing you Doctor Who and I haven't shown you Blink yet, because it's it. a very standalone episode that isn't even about the Doctor, but that's the one that the Weeping Angels are from, and they are the chief creation of like new Doctor Who to be a big deal. Like if there's any Doctor Who monster they've come up with since 2005 that is a cultural hit on the level of like Daleks and Cybermen, it's the Weeping Angels. It's mostly off the strength of Blink, which is a really great episode. But yeah, basically, you blink, they get closer. Very horror movie. Well, the one of the things I like about Doctor Who is it can do any tone. But the tone I think it does best, when I like Doctor Who best, it is a horrible horror movie that you could still show a 12-year-old. Because yeah. the statues, they don't rip you apart. They don't even really kill you. They just send you back in time. So you just like get touched by one and you are in the 1800s. And they're happy because they can like feed off of the existence you would have had in the present going away. That's like what powers them. And in the case of Blink, you can send notes to your best friend being like, hey, so this is what's happened to me. Uh, but in this case, the Weeping Angel sends Gabby back along her timeline so that she winds up at the cafe because basically the Weeping Angel was planted. Like the, the 11th Doctor, after the end of this comic, has to go to a Weeping Angel museum 
only time I've ever seen this brought up. To find a specific weeping angel because um, if the same one touches you, like they normally send people back the same distance in the past. Like each individual angel. So like if an angel touches someone and they go back to 1969 and then five minutes later it touches someone else, that person is also probably going back to 1969. Presumably this isn't something they can control because they're all sadists. So... You know, you think they would they would try to send you to as messed up a place as possible, but they just sort of send you back the same distance, each one of them. But it's individual. And so the Eleventh Doctor has to find a weeping angel that will send her back so that she can warn her previous self that the whole thing is a trap. So we have Clara coming in saying this whole thing is a trap, which is Clara fucking up and setting up the whole trap anyway. And now we have Gabby showing up to Clara doing this, being like, no. <laughs> the telling us about the trap is the trap. I just kind of love how stupid this is. Um, I like that this is yet another 12th Doctor story with a uh, random Weeping Angel cameo that happened like three times on TV in his era. Like he never had a Weeping Angel story, but there's like three different times that Weeping Angels show up for like a second. But my favorite bit of this is, so when they decide to listen to the alternate future version of Gabby, who has experienced the rest of the story, she disappears because now this version of Gabby is not going to become that version of Gabby. And then to test it out, they're like, actually, we are going to go and do the thing she taught us not to do. And she reappears. And then when they change their minds again, she immediately disappears. I like that as a gag. And I think that the writing around the time travel stuff is really fun in that it is just aiming to be as complicated and ridiculous as possible. Like, evil alternate universe version of the Doctor. Well, no, not alternate universe. Evil alternate future timeline that is definitively not going to happen version of the Doctor has to make himself happen via complicated time travel shenanigans. And then in order to prevent him from doing that, they have to do an entirely different set of complicated time travel shenanigans twice over. So all the doctors are now appraised at the full situation, including the fact that if they um that if they pick that 12th doctor timeline, obviously that's going to lead to the um evil 12th doctor. But also it looks like that timeline could still happen because the picture is still there. The original picture that Clara has. And so the doctors decide to spring the trap anyway. They go back, they get in the pose for the picture, they do the whole continuity bomb thing again, but now they get off in the alternate timeline for the 11th Doctor, rather than with the alternate timeline for the 12th Doctor, where, because all of everything is happening at the same time, I mean, this is why this was the timeline that Paul Cannell picked. Like, I get the plot convenience of this but also I'm just sort of like I'm still annoyed by that choice but anyway oh we do have some pterosaurs here what did you think of this dimetrodon I mean you're the expert rate the pronation etc etc uh the wings are correct which is nice normally they draw bat wings but this actually has pterosaur wings but um no pick no fibers so I'm gonna give it a 7 out of 10 my non-scientific reaction is just they're kind of cute. Yeah. Yeah. Th- 7 out of 10. 
they, they should be fluffy. That's the main thing that's missing. I, I think that overall it looks pretty good. We do like our, our pterosaurs on this podcast. I, I thought I should call out getting to see them. The, the visualization of this timeline is very different than it was in the episode. Like, I wouldn't recognize if they hadn't said it. Like, the only thing that is the same that we ever see is the pterosaurs. I don't know why it's drawn this way. The architecture it... is just very standard. Oh, here's a Jetsons future. And it isn't. It's a, like, it's a timeline where all of time is happening. So it should be, like, I mean, the show had some budget limitations, but the idea is that it's, like, at one point they show a bunch of hot air balloons in a steam train driving through what mostly looks like a modern-day London. And then, like, Roman legionnaires are, like, on the street. I'm like, you'd think if you were drawing, like, a bunch of buildings in this point in time, it would actually be, each building is very clearly from a different era. Like, have a Jetsons house, but also have, like, a Tudor mansion next to it. That would be correct. And then, like, next to that, an Egyptian tomb. And then next to that, you know, who the fuck knows, a, an apartment building. But um, they find the crashed Dalek saucer from the very beginning of this comic, where the, which is the device the Vord used to, like, take themselves out of time and space and maintain the changes made to them by the Time War. And then they head back to the Vord city, where the Twelfth Doctor starts pretending to be the one who's the fourth leader i actually this bit's fun i'm gonna read some dialogue out loud i haven't done that all episode i've been very good hello my loyal subjects these others are my prisoners lovely day take this one to the environmental unit and this one to the dimensional control room leave them alone there i will return to do things to them terrible things but i can only do in those rooms the Vord are of course very alarmed their leader has like lost his connection to their group mind so they like they venom him that's what it looks like he gets venomed we've got a lot of a lot of uh goop in this and so you know they execute their plan which is essentially to undo all the changes that the Vord have done to completely like bring them back to the way they were in the 1960s which does conveniently make it so that if anyone brings back the Vord in the show or in anything else, they're going to look like they did in the 60s, which is probably what they'll do, at least if it's expanded media. Like, it's actually weird to see a redesign in an expanded Doctor Who thing for an existing monster. Even the silliest things from the old version of the show, they don't normally do an update. It sort of resets it. It puts the toy back in the toy box, how it's most immediately recognizable, I suppose. Yeah, I, again, I, I, I want the Vord to show up again. I like the Vord. The more the more I ever... Well, I've, I'm pretty sure I've experienced, if not all Vord stories, the majority of Vord stories, they are so dumb. Every time they appear, they're kind of a different thing. I, I like it. They should bring them back. Uh, the Vord for Series 15, please. That would be nice. And so with everything resolved and the picture being gone, all the Doctors and Companions decide to go back to their cafe, uh, only to run into the Ninth Doctor and Rose, having a incredibly random cameo here. 
bringing it up because they uh, they decide the only reason he wasn't involved in this because he is also a post time war doctor, and the whole reason these three doctors were the ones that the like Vord leader removed out of time to try and fuck around with was because they're the ones who would maybe go and find Gallifrey and bring the Time Lords back. Nine could maybe have done this as well in a different alternate time, but they the Vord leader couldn't find a timeline that was a bad outcome, that was like a bad enough outcome that the grumpy 12th Doctor would look like an okay outcome when they were all picking like the different continuities to go with. He was simply too good. My childhood doctor's too bloody good for this. Despite the fact that the Ninth Doctor very frequently comes close to doing some genocides, apparently at no point did he actually push the button on that in any possible timeline. That's great. I love that. I, I mean, there is literally a story where he has his finger on a literal button to do a big old double genocide, and at no possible timeline does he actually pull that button. Ten? Ten goes crazy. Ten takes over the universe. Nine? No. Everyone's wrong about David Tennant. Yeah, finally it's established that once everyone, like, leaves the story, they're pretty much all going to completely forget that it happened. Uh, because time travel rules. Like, even the current TARDIS team, like, normally when multi-doctor stories happen, it is sort of implied or eventually stated that, like, the younger doctors in the story aren't going to get to remember this because otherwise they'll just know how to solve everything when they show up as the older one later. And so, like, time basically wipes their memories of their future stuff. But normally the oldest doctor gets to remember. But in this case, even the 12th doctor can't remember because they, like, found out shit about the finale for Series 8 that he hasn't been to yet. And so the story just ends with everyone losing their memories, and no one remembers, aside from Gabby and Alice, who literally do not matter to the Doctor's timeline, apparently. At least according to, like, evil asshole Doctor. I do think the fact that the villain is the guy saying that, I, I still think that, like, stories can just matter within their own context. Like, some of those Gabby and Alice comics are pretty good, you know? So who kind of, who cares if it's not going to come up in the show? But yes, that's the four Doctors. Yeah, It's a big, wacky adventure with an, an evil Doctor, which is not something you get very often. As someone who is less attached, I suppose, to the source material, it's mainly interesting conceptually. It's just like an example of the challenges of like cross-media tie-in and adaptation like the comic certainly wasn't bad by any means but it also didn't blow me away yeah i mean that makes sense you um you haven't been watching doctor who since you were 11 it isn't your favorite fictional thing that has ever existed yeah you don't have an overstuffed bookshelf that has no space left on it which just has doctor who things on it and you're not still buying more Doctor Who things for that bookshelf, even though there's no space for them on it. Yeah. I am, though. I think this comic's fun. I, like, I I agree. It's it's certainly not the best thing Paul Cornell has ever written for the show. Uh, that's gonna be one of his books, or it's gonna be one of his TV episodes. It's 
probably not the best story Titan Comics ever did, but it is the best multi-doctor comic I think that I've read. There's very few of them. They're mostly just done by Titan because it's not something Doctor Who magazine has done very often at all. I don't think I've actually ever done it. I don't think I've ever read a multi-doctor Doctor Who magazine story that wasn't like a one-part sort of joke comic. I can't remember one that's like a storyline. Oh, actually, no, I lie. There's some stuff with seven and six meeting. We might cover that next year. Because that's pretty good. More Dalek stuff. But um, this is the only one that I like that is in the mold of a traditional Doctor Who multi-Doctor story where there is a time thing happening and so they all get to meet and they have to resolve it. And the focus of the story is on the interactions between the different Doctors. And like the main reason you're reading this is to get to see these characters interacting. That's that's the whole point of a multi-doctor story. Like the best ones focus in on that, and the worst ones try to be about something else. Going right back to the very first one, which was the three doctors for Doctor Who's 10th anniversary, uh, where all the best bits of that story are just the second doctor and the third doctor bickering because they can't fucking stand each other. And it's great, it's so funny. And then they call up the first Doctor because the, the actor was already, like, too ill to really be there. But they, they brought him in and he filmed some stuff ahead of time and they have him on a TV screen, like, calling in to the other two. And he calls them a dandy and a clown and insults them as like, oh, this is seriously what's going to happen in my future? Great, I hate it. I love that shit. That's so funny. Yeah, it seems like the sort of thing where the plot just has to be devised to be an excuse for the aspects of it that people actually care about in terms of just, like, the characters hanging out. Yeah, I mean, like, the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor, which is, uh, as I said before, that's a multi-Doctor story. Um, That one is definitely, like, there's a lot going on, and the plot does matter. I, I would say that, like, this doesn't have a bad plot. But in every case, I mean, you're writing this plot because when, how, it's not often that you get multiple doctors in a room. I mean, we have an anniversary special coming up. And as of right now, it looks like we probably only have the one doctor. There's only one in the advertisements. And then at the end, he's going to regenerate into the next one. So even in the context of anniversaries, it's not consistent to do a multi-doctor story. So they're always just kind of a little special, even when they're not that special. There's some pretty rough ones that people are still pretty affectionate about just because you got them together. Yeah, yeah, like, it is, you know, easy to understand the appeal of the crossover. Yeah, it's a bit like having two different TV shows crossover, but it's the same TV show because that TV show just changes so insanely in terms of its tone and its characters like every couple years. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that is only really possible within a very long-running but also variable franchise. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's a bit like if different Star Trek crews got to meet up. Yeah. Actually, I think that's probably happened. That must have happened. 
Oh yeah, duh. It was one of the movies, wasn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's that. But that's Doctor Who. I'm gonna uh the, we we got the air dates for the specials, which we didn't have when we recorded last time. So um November twenty fifth is when they start and they're running through into early December. So my first December pick is also gonna be a Doctor Who, everyone. Yippee. In the meantime, though, are you ready for me to give you homework for next week? Yep, absolutely. Hit me. So next week, instead of talking about your favorite fictional anything of all time, your favorite long-running franchise, we are going to be talking about my favorite fictional anything and long-running franchise of all time, because we are finally going to be discussing Digimon, specifically Volume 1 of the early 2000s Tokyo Pop manga adapting the original anime. Cool. I'm going to be just as confused by that as you were by this. Yeah, yeah, we're... I'll be like, I get the plot, but none of the references. Yeah, we're unplanned having a bit of a theme of adaptations, but... Yeah, that'll be next week. Thank you all for listening, and bye. Bye.